Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to our Sunday night chats, Rev War Revelry. Uh, tonight we're talking about Nathaniel Green, the quartermaster, um, especially uh, his time there at Valley Forge when he be does when he does become quartermaster. Uh, we are joined tonight by Daniel Davis. Um, he's a um, historian. He is an educator. He is the senior educator right now for the American Battlefield Trust. Um, you've probably seen him uh, giving pop-up tours around Virginia, most notably at Yorktown. Um, and he is also the author of uh, numerous books and studies on the uh, American Civil War. So, Dan, thank you for joining us tonight on our next installment of Emerging Rev War, Rev War, Revelry. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So tonight we're talking about someone that uh, Dan and I have had many chats about, uh, Nathaniel Green and about uh, Valley Forge and, and so forth. So we're excited to dive into it because uh, Nathaniel Green once wrote that you've never heard of a quartermaster in history. And so tonight we're actually going to give Nathaniel Green uh, his due diligence. And so uh, prior to that, though, um, Nathaniel Green, though, is there from almost the first shot uh, right after Lexington Concord. Um, he is unique. Uh, he is born into a Quaker family who are pacifists, but he is uh, obviously enamored by the uh, militia. Uh, Dan is going to show portrait there of the young Nathaniel Green strapping uh, there. Uh, do you want to talk about the picture real quick uh, that you just threw up there today? Yeah, I think this is, uh, again, this is uh, Green probably in his heyday uh, as depicted during his time in the Southern campaign. I think we remember Green more so for his conduct and his actions in the Carolinas, 1780-1782, but uh, he really cuts his teeth and really comes into his own as a quartermaster, and you could probably argue that his time in uh, the Carolinas in the Southern Campaign, it, he doesn't have that without his time as the Quartermaster General of the Continental Army. No, you're exactly right. But let's, as uh, he got used to horses and wagons, let's not put the horse in front of the cart, uh, move to the Southern Theater that quick. Um, so Nathaniel Green initially does march off, I think, with the Kentish Guards. Um, however, 
because of a, an incident earlier in his life, he does walk with a limp. So he's not martial enough uh, to actually get an officer position. And he's actually sent home early in, um, prior to the American Revolution. But he returns in time, uh, obviously, luckily for the Americans. Uh, to get a role, and he captures the eye of George Washington quickly up around the environs of Boston. Um, he then rises through the ranks, um, becomes one of George Washington's most trusted subordinates. Uh, through, on, and I, if I believe, uh, Dana, Dan, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't he, I think he gets sick during the New York campaign, unfortunately, at a very inopportune time for the American cause. Yeah, he does get sick during the New York campaign. He does take a brief uh, leave of absence. Uh, he is sick in uh, the hospital. But you mentioned, uh, you know, that illness, Phil, and uh, Green had, he, Green is actually not in the best of health through, the, through much of his life. He suffered from asthma. Uh, for much of his life, as you mentioned, he walked with a limp, which kept him from uh, becoming a an officer in the Kennish uh, Guards, that militia unit that he helped uh, form in Rhode Island. But uh, I think you know we, the people of the United States, have uh, a debt of gratitude to the colony or then the state of Rhode Island who uh, promote uh, Green from private to the rank of brigadier general in 17 spring summer of 1775 putting green uh in a uh position of leadership and we think you know we go back to the civil war we think about elon farnsworth and george custer and wesley merritt being promoted from captain to brigadier general on the eve of the Getty battle of gettysburg but green is promoted from private to brigadier general ultimately to major general in the continental army so i think uh again we probably uh, for green service to the United States, we owe uh, the Rhode Island General Assembly uh, a debt of gratitude for that. There you go. Shout out to the Rhode Island General Assembly. Uh, you don't usually hear that. Um, shout out to the to politics, but uh, we're not straying too far down into that realm uh, tonight. Uh, and of course, Nathaniel Green, like most of the American generals, um, their education um did not obviously have a military education. They didn't go to a military academy. Um, actually, Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox uh, probably knew each other. I mean, uh, then Green go into Knox's bookstore uh, to, to actually purchase uh, books and read and so forth before the war. Uh, I have to go back and take a look at that, but Green was a voracious reader. I mean, he consumed, he had his own, as uh, historian John Buchanan has uh, 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 detailed it an eclectic library he was uh, in fact very fond of uh, works in latin and uh, he was uh, really a self-taught individual because of his quaker upbringing his father his family did not endorse uh, green having a an education outside of the society of friends out of outside of the Quaker faith, but nonetheless, uh, Green grew up uh, reading as much as he possibly could, uh, both from uh, the classical sense, but also from the military sense. And that'll unfortunately uh, sometimes get the, the worst of him as he comes back after a uh, brief illness during that New York campaign that we mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, uh, because he does instruct George Washington to hold on to a fort there. Um, that's actually named uh, in George Washington's honor. And it's actually one of the biggest uh, debacles there at the end of the New York campaign, the loss of Fort Washington. I think about 3,000 soldiers are captured, including um, some of the uh, men dear and near to me to this flag above, some Maryland riflemen, um, oath 
the Holland Williams being amongst them. But um, luckily, Green is able to, like Washington, understand those mistakes, and he actually kind of becomes wiser from them. Um, Would you agree, Dan? Yeah, I I do agree. And uh, Fort Washington is just uh, tagging off that just a little bit. Fort Washington is a crushing defeat on the heels of a campaign in which the British under Sir William Howe have pushed Washington and the Continental Army out of New York. They've captured New York City. And not only, as Phil mentioned, there's a number of men captured, but also uh, munitions, provisions, ammunition. Uh, It's a crushing blow to the Continental Army. And Washington actually decides to hold the fort against probably his better judgment, but because Green insists that the fort can withstand a heavy British assault when when it does not. It falls within roughly about six to eight hours. The fighting takes roughly about the entire day in the middle of November of 1776. But it's there that, you know, Green, right after the fall of Fort Washington, he writes to Henry Knox, he's sad, vexed, sick, and sorry, something along those lines. It's It's a devastating defeat, not only for Washington Continental Army for Green, both personally and professionally. But it's after the fall of Fort Washington that Green begins, he he starts to begin to dabble a little bit in the role of a quartermaster general, which I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, obviously as we get into and uh, later on and what the, what that position uh, is or was in the 18th century, but they're responsibilities. He begins, as Washington begins pulling out of New York, pulling across New Jersey, eventually into Pennsylvania, prior to the uh, battles of Trenton and Princeton, Green begins to oversee and put together magazines or depots, forage depots, supply depots for the Continental Army to subsist on as Washington begins to pull out of and across New Jersey to subsist uh, the army or what's really at that point in time, what's left of the Continental Army after uh, the end of the New York campaign. And it's certainly not only does uh, he double on that, he also brings to the forefront um, Thomas Paine, um, who is actually yeah, marching uh, in his depleted division um, and obviously writes um, the famous what American crisis. This American. is the time. Yeah, these are the times to try men's souls. So Nathaniel Green, though, does continue in a, a line command. So he's in charge of a, a division um, throughout the rest of, uh, of course, 1776 and into 1777. Um, he's with Washington um, throughout. Um, he becomes um, uh, probably the, if there would be at a, after Charles Lee's captured there at Basking Ridge, probably Washington's left-hand man. Um, would you agree, Dan? I would agree. Uh, I think by that point in time, he, despite what happens at Fort Washington, uh, Washington, I think, sees a little bit of himself in Green, and that Green is a very ambitious, uh, he's a rather young man, uh, but he's also very ambitious from the military, since which Washington certainly was going back to his time as an officer in the Virginia Regiment during the French and Indian War. And I think that appeals to Washington a little bit. And despite the defeat in New York, despite the loss of Fort Washington, their relationship continues to grow, especially during uh, what we call the 10 crucial days, the battles of Trenton and Princeton, where Washington changes in two victories. He changes within the course of about two weeks, the trajectory of the American Revolution. And Green is right there at his side with him. So the two men have 
or have they've established a relationship, but they start to build and continue to build a bond through those uh, the end of 1776 and then to 1777. And then as they go in the 77, one of the largest battles initially, obviously, um, uh, the summer campaign, Washington is uh, initially not co completely sold on what the British offensive campaign will be. A Burgwine's army coming down and um, uh, this campaign season of 1777, Howe eventually takes his army up and in lands in Maryland, starts coming up into southeastern Pennsylvania, where they fight on September 11th of 1777, the largest, I think, per manned or per unit or person, whatever you want to call it, battle along Brandywine Creek on September 11th. Um, and Green actually does play a role there. He's held in reserve, as, uh, but his column does remove in remarkable speed. Um, some say he covers about four miles in 45 minutes um, to help uh, buttress the American forces. So Green is there, there once again throughout the beginning of the campaign of 1777. Um, obviously, his uh, fights up through uh, the next battle, Germantown, October of 1777, um, and then brings us into December. Um, but prior, before we get to White Marsh and the move to Valley Forge, um, Green is acting as line command. Who is quartermaster general um, who's occupying? I'm not saying he's doing the job. But who's occupying the post there in late 1777, Dan? Yeah, that would be that would be Thomas Mifflin, um, and he is the quartermaster general of the Continental Army. Is he acting as the quartermaster general should at Army headquarters as a staff position? No, he's in Philadelphia. Washington has kept him in Philadelphia through the course of the campaign. Uh, because Mifflin is not only is he talented from a staff position, a staff perspective, but he's also uh, assisting with the Continental Army at a critical time with uh, recruiting duties in Philadelphia. And before I think we go a little bit farther into what happens with Thomas Mifflin, I want to rewind a little bit back to Brandywine, because I think it's a Brandywine where Green sees his redemption as a battlefield commander. As Phil mentioned, Green fights a rear guard action that allows Washington's army to make it safely off the battlefield. They live the fight another day, which really becomes the mantra of the Continental Army, not only in the North, but as well as in the South, when Green becomes commander of the Southern Department. But because of that rear guard action gives Green, I think, a little bit of redemption, at least in, uh, not, not so much in Washington's eyes, but in his own eyes as a commander. Now, jumping back to Thomas Mifflin, Thomas Mifflin is in Philadelphia. Well, Philadelphia is the target of Sir William Howe's offensive in the summer early fall of 1777. Howe wants to either one, capture Philadelphia, but more so he wants to destroy Washington's army. Philadelphia ultimately falls on September 26, 1777. Within just a few weeks, I'm going to pull an image of him up. It really, it, it pains me to do this, but I'm going to show the folks uh, an image of Thomas Mifflin. Mifflin is a major general in the Continental Army, and he is the quartermaster general. Again, we'll get into uh, what a quartermaster general is in just a few minutes. Uh, but that is Thomas Mifflin on the screen. On October the 8th, this is a few weeks after the fall of Philadelphia. This is just a few days after the Battle of Germantown, where Green plays, uh, again, a, a rather significant, prominent role in Washington's effort to potentially recapture the capital. Thomas Mifflin tenders his resignation, but he doesn't tell George Washington. He goes home to Reading, 
Pennsylvania. And he just leaves. And if you take a look at this from the perspective of Washington, Washington is not only serving as a commander in chief, he's also serving as his own theater commander. He is the main uh, defender of Philadelphia, the American capital, but he's also having to coordinate uh, operations in the Northern Department with Major General Horatio Gates and what becomes or what is the Saratoga campaign. So Washington effectively is now in the middle of this major campaign, having to fill probably the most important role that a 18th century army can have in a quartermaster general, along with the fact that he's theater commander, and he's also the commander in chief. And this is a heavy burden on Washington. Now, Mifflin, for what it's worth, uh, he has some political connections in Congress, and he is actually able, despite resigning, he's actually able to keep his commission as major general. And then he goes on to serve, I believe, on the, uh, 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 the board of war. But at the same time, Congress, which is since I had to flee Philadelphia, they don't appoint a quartermaster general until March of 1778. So the Continental Army, and this leads into you know, what Phil has studied in detail in the winter at Valley Forge, without that quartermaster general, without that role being filled, the Continental Army goes into its winter encampment at Valley Forge without the person who's there to supply them with their basic needs. And it's, and this role goes unfilled for four months, which certainly, uh, along with other factors, but certainly lends to uh, the condition of the army and what the army has to deal with throughout the winter of 1777, 1778. Yeah, very true. I mean, it, uh, it's almost unfathomable to think that for almost, what, five months, one of the most important positions logistically and behind the scenes for the kind of the army is not fulfilled at all and just kind of sits on the back burner. Um, prior to moving into Valley Forge, though, we do have a few good uh, points. Uh, one we did gloss over is that, yeah, Green does probably solidify his standing back at Brandywine uh, after Fort Washington, but he also, uh, thank you, John Maz, uh, does do a, a yeoman service there at Trenton. Um, and there's 10 crucial days, and Dan did mention that briefly. Um, but a comparison that I've never made, uh, heard made, and I know that um, this is a little early to bring in the other uh, major conflict on American shores in, that happens about 75 years later, and that's the American Civil War. But someone said Washington and Green's relationship is akin to U.S. Grant's and William T. Sherman's relationship. Um, that's an interesting point. So I want to take a segue for a minute or two and kind of see what you think dan that's a that's an interesting correlation i think that might be i think that might be the topic of another revelry later on down the road <laughs> this the american revolution uh comparisons to the civil war but also shout out uh good to see you, uh john in the chat hope all is well and you're in man yeah i mean i, I think uh if what sherman said that if grant stood beside me when i was drunk i'll stand or when i was crazy i'll stand beside him when he's a drunkard maybe washington said hey i'll stand beside green when he screwed up our uh, fort washington as long as you stand beside me as we retreat out of brandywine and give up philadelphia so not as catchy as sherman's term but maybe someone can come up with a better um kind of attaché there but as then of course mifflin goes home um and then the army obviously uh, marches in uh, 
On December 19th, down the golf road, they end up at a place called Valley Forge, which ironically had actually been scattered of supplies later earlier in the year uh, by raid by Cornwallis and always mispronounce his name, the Hessian general, uh, Knipphausen or Nipphausen, however you pronounce his name. Um, but Washington chooses Valley Forge because of its strategic significance. It is close to Philadelphia. Uh, Washington had a tough decision to make. Do you give up the capital of the uh, colonies, Philadelphia, or do you move and give up the, the what is left of supply and munitions depots like places like Reading and York uh, in the interior of Pennsylvania? So he decides that the capital is not the important thing um, and that continuing to keep the supplies and munitions safe and also um, the interior of the country. And so he goes to Valley Forge. And um, so as we open up about Valley Forge, I don't want to, of course, take over the entire conversation, but as they march in, Dan, uh, any insights on what the initial part of why Washington chooses Valley Forge or uh, what's going through his mind? Yeah, I think with Valley Forge, and I'll uh, borrow a little bit from our good friend Rick Herrera, just published a book on Valley Forge called Feeding Washington's Army. Washington chooses Valley Forge because, number one, as Phil mentioned, it's close to Philadelphia. But as Rick mentions, it, he chooses it and he looks at it from the modern perspective of forward operations base. It's at a location close to the enemy where you can project power. You can not only from perspective of having an encampment, but sending out expeditions into the countryside to project power, project authority. It's on advantageous ground. It's on high ground. So if the British were to sally out of Philadelphia, Washington would certainly be uh, have uh, the defensive advantage should how decide to actually attack the encampment but and we see this as well from green's writings as they march in and mid toward the end of december just before christmas of 1777 uh the supplies are they're badly and really bad shape they are in need of not only supplies food but uh most importantly uh winter clothing they need and they obviously will find the uh, supplies to uh, ultimately build their winter huts. But the uh, uh, Continental Army is in really bad shape. And this is reflected in Green's writings. If you have a chance to read uh, his letters, uh, this is, they're in really bad shape when they arrive at Valley Forge. Oh, you're uh, exactly right. Even um, George Washington. I mean, um, some of the iconic images of that encampment is obviously him kneeling in the snow and praying, which he never did. But he does um, throughout the war. I think he spends someone, some historian said about 10,000 pieces of correspondence emanates from his desk. Not all, of course, written by him. Uh, he does have uh, a staff to do it as well. But December 23rd of 1777, so four days after coming into Valley Forge, uh, Washington will actually sit at his desk. He's probably just about to move in or moved into the Isaac Potts house. And he writes a letter to uh, the president of the Continental Congress, Henry Lawrence. And he says, I am now convinced beyond a doubt that unless some great and capital change suddenly takes place in that line, this army must inevitably be reduced to one of other of these three things, starve, dissolve, or disperse in order to obtain subsistence in the best manner that they can. A very, I mean, that's a shot across the bow to Lawrence and the Continental Congress. Like, um, and in case um, they didn't understand the importance, Washington underscores that by the next line saying, in quotes, sir, this is not an exaggerated picture and that I have abundant reasons to support what I say. And so here you have an army marching in and 
uh, contrary to what public myth states, yes, Valley Forge is not the, the coldest winter. It's not the doesn't have the most snowfall winter that happens at Morristown the following year. And it's not a, like the surrounding area didn't have an, a somewhat of an abundance of crops or produce or livestock or supplies to give. It's just that the kind of the Congress, um, the quartermaster department is in deplorable conditions. Um, jumping ahead slightly, Green will say that I have not received any returns from General Mifflin and therefore can only conjecture as to the full extent of our wants. This was on March 26. So as Green takes over, the quartermaster department is in shambles. The public trust of the quartermaster department is also in shambles. And kind of the Congress is more concerned with creating a board of war to look at Washington. Um, and Washington is kind of caught between knowing that some of his dispatches coming out of Valley Forge, like the letter he just wrote, could have been intercepted by spies or scouts or who knows who's filtering around the Continental Congress. And so you have this, that's the arena that I like to picture or paint for people late December into early January as the army marches in the Valley Forge. All that is taking place in this vacuum. And the dire result is as this gets unfolded, the rank and file are the ones that are suffering. Yeah, and what Washington needs at this point in time, and I think we've been going a long way around the barn, I think we just get, get to the heart of the matter. It, he needs a quartermaster general. So the question becomes in a very broad sense, what is a quartermaster general? Within the context of the 18th century, and obviously this has changed over the course of the last 250 years, but within the context of what Washington is looking for is that a quartermaster general is uh, essentially a staff position. It's a staff position very close to the commanding general. They were responsible. They had several different responsibilities depending on uh, what other positions were filled around, but essentially they were, and this really speaks to Valley Forge in the winter encampment and the uh, subsequent winter encampments is that a quartermaster would locate and lay out an army's camp. Well, what does that mean? Valley Forge is in a, at a def, and uh, is on high ground. It's defensively advantageous. So you, ideally, you want to have someone who had an eye for terrain, but also a good eye for where the water is. How am I going to supply my men with water? Uh, they, uh, in addition to that, they would uh, mark out and uh, uh, delineate, choose the army's line of march up to and including uh, if they had creeks across and bridges had uh, to be built, they would procure and distribute camp equipment and tents. Idea, uh, again, uh, very important within the context of winter encampment, along with, uh, to a certain degree, the tools that would be used to build the winter huts that you see if you go to Valley Forge today, the reconstructed huts. But most importantly, and Phil kind of touched on this at the opening, when he said, don't put the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse. The quartermaster general was responsible for the transportation of all supplies to the army, which meant that they had to requisition and find carts, uh, wagons, sleighs, whatever you could find, as well as the uh, animals, oxen, the horses uh, to uh, pull those carts and wagons and along with the, uh, the forge to feed them, to provide that to the army. So it was a very heavy responsibility. And again, as we talked about, it was a responsibility that when Washington goes into a winter encampment, he does not have somebody uh, in that position who is essentially responsible for laying out the encampment and providing supplies to the army. And that's, and even as 
Um, uh, green, I mean, it takes months. Uh, you're looking November 1777, March of 1778, uh, four months. Um, as even uh, when Washington, that letter to sends to Henry Lawrence does precipitate a committee in camp to come out. Uh, Washington is saying, look, come out and look at this army. Um, and Governor Morris actually says they're um, paraphrasing, it's an army of skeletons. I mean, it's to the point where when soldiers are going to the sick, uh, the hospitals, the sick wards, whatever you want to call them, they're actually inventorying these soldiers' clothes because other soldiers are ready to pilfer the clothes um, when these guys go in to have amputations or treatments for smallpox. Um, there are ones, obviously, that are uh, looking at how do you um, – uh, they're stewing stones to get the moss off of it. Um, and what's ironic is that there are places along the way, because of mismanagement, there are depots that have food but no wagons. And then there's places that there are wagons and no food. And so it's not like the country doesn't have care. Just you can't – with no one – no head, you have all this stuff comes to a standstill. And I know it's 20 years ahead of time, but Napoleon will once say an army marches or fights on his stomach. Well, it also has to encamp at his stomach. And that is one of the, the necessary things that Washington has to, to draw that line with. And so, of course, he turns to Nathaniel Green, who is his left-hand man. And, of course, uh, Green utters one of the most, I think, one of the coolest comments, quotes ever, um, and we were doing this rivalry partly because I wanted to make sure that he knew he went down in history, but it is that nobody ever heard of a quartermaster in history. Well, Dan, now Nathaniel Green can rest the sword there in Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, that he has been heard in history. Well, and I appreciate that. I, I obviously do have a soft spot in my heart for uh, Nathaniel Green. And uh, Phil mentioned the committee in camp, and Green is actually meeting with the committee yes. in camp uh, through the course of the end of January going into February. And uh, things finally, and again, the Army's out without this key position going back to October. It's not until the second week of February that things really come to a head. Uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, Phil mentioned the weather at Valley Forge. It's not as cold as the Morristown weather, but there is some really pretty brutal weather uh, around the second week of February. And the Army is, uh, because of the poor weather, those wagons that and supplies uh, that can get through can't because the roads are impassable. And so uh, Green, after meeting with uh, the committee in camp, he sort of has an, uh, uh, an audition on the job, if you will. Uh, Washington is going to send him out for the better part of a week, week and a half, two weeks into the surrounding countryside with a force. It's an expedition to or grand forage to bring back whatever they can from the local population. Not so much, uh, again, to try to help the Continental Army to survive, but uh, Washington at the same time, he doesn't want these supplies, these potential supplies to fall into the hands of the British who are sitting in Philadelphia. So for the better part of a week and a half, two weeks or so, maybe a week, uh, Green is out on a foraging expedition. And he writes, I think, very famously that, uh, you know, it's a very brutal job to have to requisition or take these wagons, the, you know, cattle, horses, sheep, chickens, whatever he possibly can to feed the army from the local population. Uh, he wants to make sure that the local population supports Washington, supports the cause of independence. But he writes, uh, again, famously, like Pharaoh, I harden my heart 
to the task. And the audition on the job actually goes pretty well. And the, you could probably rate the expedition as being somewhat of a success. And it's after that expedition that Washington essentially has found his replacement for Mifflin. He's found his new quartermaster general in Nathaniel Green. Uh, but Green at the same time, he doesn't want to, he's a little hesitant to take over that position. He doesn't want to lose his commission as a major general. He doesn't want to lose his line command. And there's some, there's also some other parameters that he's concerned about uh, once he takes on uh, the job that are able to iron out. He is able to get a, a couple of excellent assistants, a fellow named uh, John Cox, who is a Philadelphia merchant, Charles Pettit, who was a secretary, former secretary of state uh, in uh, New Jersey to be his assistants. Um, and with Washington's promise that he will retain his commission as a major general, retain his division command, he finally, uh, after Congress, in fact, uh, Congress, they, uh, I think they pass or they, uh, they decide in early March of 1778 that Green will become the quartermaster general. Green accepts a few weeks later, and he becomes the new quartermaster general. You're right. And uh, there's actually a great line uh, when he's out on those foraging expeditions that I think uh, might have kind of persuaded even Washington farther to kind of pressure Green into that quartermaster role. And he says... Um, Green writes to Washington, in quote, God grant that we may never be brought into such a wretched condition again, um, end quote. And so Washington's like, hey, if we don't want to be brought into a wretched condition again, don't I have a job for you, Mr. Green? And and so it is true. And uh, Green, actually, I mean, uh, you mentioned briefly Charles Pettit and um, John Cox. Um, Cox, an eminent Philadelphia merchant, um, he assumes all the responsibility of overseeing, purchasing, and examining stores that are brought. Pettit uh, receives the task of keeping the books, recording the purchases, and overseeing the cash of the department. Green also does something that's groundbreaking. He actually kind of goes public, and he actually writes, he puts in local newspapers and stuff, kind of that there's an uh we're turning the page in the quartermaster department he takes a media blitz if you would say and and sends out that hey um we know there have been discrepancies and people have not been paid but there's a there's a new sheriff in town uh colloquially speaking there and that actually starts a the quartermaster department on a different foot i mean uh green obviously is coming in with a shambles uh, of a mismanaged system but he's also um, saying that there's simply things that just need attention. Um, uh, he even writes, there have been great losses sustained for want of attention. Um, and Green understands that. It's just simply getting the right people in the right place. And uh, Cox and Pettit are two of those people. Um, if I'm mispronouncing his name, blame it on the Baltimorean to me that mispronounces half the names. But um, those are two unsung heroes. Uh, that I'd like to get mentioned to because they are the right and left-hand man's of Green as Green is the left-hand man of Washington. Yeah, and Green comes in not only at a time when the Army is suffering, but it, you know, we're looking, looking at the calendar. It's now getting on toward the end of March when he accepts his appointment. April's coming. May is coming. That means that the, both armies are going to begin moving out of their winter encampments. The campaigning season is going to be starting up pretty soon. So Green really, his responsibilities are really twofold. He has to not only provide for the men at Valley Forge who are still in the encampment while the encampment lasts, but he also has to start 
has to start reestablishing supply lines, reestablishing lines of communication, and preparing for the upcoming spring campaign, whatever they may come, wherever that might be. So he has, his responsibilities are twofold. And he actually, uh, he implements and executes plans that his predecessor Mifflin had left in place. And he reviews the plans uh, with Washington, I believe, uh, also with some of the other officers. He said, yeah, you know, this is, this is sound for with what we have. Let's move forward and execute. And uh, the first thing he does, the most important thing he does is he reestablishes those supply lines. He has those wagons rolling into Valley Forge on a daily basis with uh, those badly needed supplies for the men. But he also, what uh, you see, he is going to do something that he's uh, he had done after the uh, fall of Fort Washington during the withdrawal across New Jersey. He's going to begin working with his deputies, his assistants, to start setting up magazines and forage depots uh, throughout Pennsylvania to prepare the army or to prepare to support the army whenever the army leaves uh, Valley Forge. Um, and uh, this is uh, also interesting because we can also uh, we can project this out to when he becomes finally becomes commander of the Southern uh, Department in uh, in the fall of 1780 takes over command officially in December of 1780. He establishes supply uh, depots and magazines throughout South Carolina, throughout North Carolina to support his army. So Green is not only uh, building on his past experience, but he's taking, he's going to take the experience during the winter encampment at Valley Forge and project that out into the future when he is back as a full-time field commander. Oh, great, Brian. Um, and let's, uh, two second pause. We had a great question come in from Bob Wong. Um, did Green compensate the local population with vouchers, continental currency, promissory notes or combination or other. Um, I think most of it was what, promissory notes or continental currency, if I uh, remember correctly there. Yeah, um, I, th I think that's correct. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the continental currency, that paper script, uh, eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, depreciate in value, whereas uh, and this is, uh, you know, going back to Washington's reasoning for uh, the foraging expeditions in February that he initially sent Green out on, he'll eventually send Anthony Wayne, as well as Light Horse Harry Leon. Uh, Green, uh, Washington does not want those supplies to fall into the hands of the British because the British have hard silver species that they can give that has a, a, an appreciative or is either going to appreciate in value. So, that's one of the reasons why uh, you know, things eventually start to go downhill again for Green as a quartermaster as the years go along because of the continental script. No, you're exactly right. And building on that point, I mean, one of the uh, undertold stories or things we like to remove out of the narrative is that some of the farmers in Pennsylvania realized that the British paid in hard specie. Americans paid in continental prom or notes that would would depreciate or would only be valuable if the Continentals won. If you're looking at the British and sconed in Philadelphia and this ragtag army of Valley Forge and you're a farmer in central Pennsylvania whose loyalties are caught between the lines, where are you trading? Well, hard coin um, always holds holds its value. Uh, one of the other guys I'd like to mention, um, and we're going to throw him out, is Clint Biddle. Yes, um, absolutely. And he actually comes up, I think he's the, comp. what is it? Uh, let me get his title right. The Commissary General of Cargill. 
I think is his official title. Um, and he actually established a line of forge depots of various sizes to aid and sustain future movements of the Connaught Army. Green endorses his idea. Green takes it to Washington. Mm-hmm. Washington endorses the idea. And the goal is to safely store over 800,000 bushels of grain in supply depots situated approximately 15 miles apart from each other. Um, and they're going to send these initially. They don't know, of course, Washington's plan. They don't know what the British are going to do. Obviously, the British will start to evacuate Philadelphia to head toward New York. But they start calling for depots along the Skullkill, the Delaware, the Head of Elk in Maryland. Um, so Clement Biddle comes up with this idea. He's also coming up with the idea to actually let's use the river to move supplies until it becomes the depth becomes too low in March, April, or so forth later on. But why do more work going over roads that are treacherous in the winter when you have this nice flowing waterway? Um, so Clement Biddle, um, I know he doesn't get many shout outs in the history of the American Revolution, but tonight um, you get your due, sir. Yeah, and just to tag off of Phil, what you said, the use of the uh, rivers, the waterborne, uh, uh, avenues of advance. Biddle, he establishes those uh, magazines, those supply depots in areas where that are essentially unnavigable to British ships. So they're under, they have that additional layer of protection from the enemy. So again, uh, I highly endorse uh, <laughs> the shout yeah. out to Clement Biddle. He was uh, he, certainly very effective, but also uh, uh, lent a great hand to Green. And part of the reason that, that Biddle's idea uh, had such merit is that if you imagine a soldier's suffering, imagine the the horses, the Hudson and other ones that are suffering. There's a report that over 700, uh, let me get 700 horses died during the six months that the American army is at Valley Forge. And so um, you forget that, yeah, there are supplies to be pulled, but if you're not feeding the troops, more than likely the, the the horses aren't being fed either. I know it seems like a mundane or obvious comment to make, but it's something that um, faces a 19th century army that we just, in the 20th, 21st century, we got away from. I mean, mechanized movement and so forth, but horses need to eat, horses need to be shod. They obviously have are, are tuned to the weather as well. But as we emerge, of course, Green was promised by Washington to keep his line commission. He's uh, he does not go back into a line commission, though, after Valley Forge. He actually labors on as a quartermaster uh, up uh, for another few years. Um, and he actually, uh, Washington's, no pun intended, saves his bacon a little bit uh, because the green is a little hot-headed. Um, April 1779, I am more and more convinced that there is measures taken to render the business of the quartermaster's department odious. And if I have not some satisfaction for the community of Congress respecting the matter, I shall leave to quit the department. Um, and so Green is not happy being Quartermaster General. Washington continue has to take his unofficial son and keep him from doing something too hot-headed. Yeah, and part of that goes back to the fact that uh, through the course of the revolution, the Continental Script, again, we talked about it a few minutes ago, the difference between the Continental Script uh, of the Americans, of the Continental Army, and the silver of the British. The Continental Script continues to depreciate through the course of the American Revolution, but what does not depreciate, what goes up is, I mean, really, it's basic supply and demand. Green must continue to requisition and supply the Continental Army, but because supplies begin to dwindle, the depreciation value of the dollar, that really brings itself to uh, a, a sort of a, a mini crisis where Congress 
based on complaints from the various states actually gives authorization over to the states to uh, investigate Green's department uh, because Congress doesn't believe Green about how much he's actually having to expend to keep the army in the field. And this causes, uh, you know, as Phil mentioned, a lot of grief on the side of Nathaniel Green to the point where he uh, sends his resignation uh, to Congress as quartermaster general. But as events will play out, farther to the south in South Carolina, which is past the anniversary a few days ago, August 1780, a British army under Charles Cornwallis defeats an American army under Horatio Gates at the Battle of Campbell. And all, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Phil. <laughs> no, I was just about to say, um, you're um, glad you started moving uh, your gaze south because uh, Don Dale actually said Green must have felt as though he fell from the frying pan into the fire when he arrived at the south. Oh, oh, oh no, no question, no question. And uh, Gates' defeat uh, has uh, finds Green's resignation sitting with Congress, Washington. Uh, decides that he's going to appoint Green to command the Southern Army. He's going to relieve uh, Gates. And when Green arrives in the South in December, early December of 1780, uh, 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 the viewer mentioned it, frying pan into the fire. He finds that uh, roughly about 70, 75% of his, uh, uh, his, of his new command is not fit for duty. And you're looking again in the wintertime, albeit a little bit more milder in uh, the Carolinas, but you're looking at uh, the winter of 1780 with uh, Green taking on, uh, again, new responsibilities, but at the same time, uh, just as important as as the responsibilities that he took on at Valley Forge when he became the quartermaster general. No, you're right. And we had a great um, comment or question come in um, from a uh, listener or viewer. How did other low-ranking commissary quartermaster officers like Ephraim Blaine, who was frontline with the regiments and brigades, fare with the shortages and complaints level against them? I mean, um, I hate to use the colloquial, you're between a rock and a hard place, but you are. I mean, there is, they're the ones trying to find supplies, trying to use scripts, trying to, um, they have even a more personal um uh, I guess, scrutiny to them because they know these gentlemen if they come up with the regiment or they moved in with the company or so forth. Um, but it's tough when you're using a script that is going up or going down, depending on inflation, on worth and value. Um, there are things rotting, there is supply issues. Um, and a lot of it's, there's nothing they can really do. And I want to kind of use an example of a gentleman that uh, Green uses uh, in the South to kind of is Edward Carrington, um, who is actually um, uh, is the unsung hero of, if Green is the unsung hero of Valley Forge, but quartermaster Edward Carrington is the unsung hero to uh, Green's basically the race to the Dan. And that is that these gentlemen go behind the scenes to try to figure out where the army's moving, how to get supplies, where to get the boats and so forth. And so Blaine and other ones are similar. They're trying to literally make magic out of nothing. And um, I'll pass it back to Dan to talk about the Southern campaign, if you want to add anything with Carrington. Yeah, uh, Carrington is going to play an integral role uh, for Green's army during a very critical phase of the campaign. And what Green is able to do, and uh, just uh, to put it in, into a nutshell, not go too far down the rabbit hole, but through the course of the winter of 1780, December 1780, up until December 1782, the course of two years, uh, Green is able to essentially fight. He wages a campaign of 
uh, attrition, a campaign of exhaustion, really a campaign of conquest. He could probably divide his, those two years up into three different, different phases, but he is able to wear down the British army in the South. And not only is he able to do that, but he's also able to reduce the various garrisons that have been established throughout uh, South Carolina and Georgia and press the British back to the coast to the point where they are by the time of just after the fall or the, the Cornwallis surrender at Yorktown, uh, the British will eventually uh, only hold Savannah and Charleston. Savannah will be evacuated first in the summer of 1782 uh, and Charleston will follow later on December of 1782. So what Green is able to do in the South is, uh, again, in the, the Southern campaign uh, sort of overshadows what he's able to do as the quartermaster general, but both services are, are that he renders in both theater or both roles is invaluable. But in the South, is he's able to retain control of North Carolina, South Carolina, eventually Georgia, and hold that to the point where it will not be used as a bargaining chip between the diplomats when they come to the uh, negotiation table after Yorktown. And his ultimate defeat of the British is, uh, I think might, it might just be, I think it might just be, I think it is, is his greatest accomplishment to the cause of the United States. Great, great points there. And um, I, we're going to kind of seesaw back and forth as we get some comments in. Um, questions. Uh, one of them is, of course, what is the what were the political loyalties of the populations along the uh, the counties, Bucks, Chester, modern day Montgomery counties, where they primarily patriots, loyalists, or neutral? Um, I mean, you that's a that's a great question. Yeah. Obviously, you have a lot of uh, the pacifist type um, uh, religious sects that are in that part of Pennsylvania. You do have some um, uh, very leaning patriotic uh, sentiments. Uh, there's a report I was just bringing up that I used in some of my research that Bucks County was one of the first ones to um, try to supply troops uh, to the American calls out of Pennsylvania. Uh, some of you have just basic survival. Um, both sides, of course, between Valley Forge and Philadelphia are, are contending for supplies. And so as you're, uh, as a farmer there, you have to decide um, what, uh, where does your loyalty lie or where does the best where you get hard specie or where you get continental script or do you will you try to hide stuff to survive the winter yourself and so um loyalties obviously are mixed um there um, most of the loyalist population will obviously would go in, retreat into philadelphia and when the british left philadelphia they would obviously uh leave by land or water um joseph galloway um um one of the uh, Pent uh, what is it pennsylvania i don't know if he he was there at the continental congress and then he became um uh showed his true colors as a loyalist uh, as an example but um great question there um dan i don't know if you want to add anything yeah i not too much more i can add to that i mean it's it's definitely an interesting question um and we we might never really know yeah I mean, it's, uh, I think uh, the best way to ex explain is what John Adams once said. It was a one-third of the population uh, supported the uh, calls of independence, one-third supported the lowest, one-third didn't care either way. And so uh, maybe that's the best way to describe it, um, uh, throwing Mr. Adams in there um, to, uh, to let the primary source speak itself. So we're about 10 minutes from the hour. And so 
as Nathaniel Green, um, let's as we wrap up, um, Nathaniel Green, what do you see any correlations between Dan between time as quartermaster, Valley Forge, and the year or two prior or around it, and how that corresponds to his service in the Southern Theater? I think it prepares him for what he has to do in the Southern Theater. It makes him look beyond the uh, the optics of being just a division commander. He has to now think and adjust to executing on a higher level from an army level now as a quartermaster general. And I think that prepares him for his ultimate, ultimately being placed in uh, army command in uh, the fall, when early winter of 1780. It's just his mindset shifts from just from one level up uh, as a commander. So he's able to see not just from the division level, but the entire picture. And I think his time as quartermaster helps him do that and prepares him for his time in the South. I think uh, I'm going to piggyback off that and say exactly. Um, I mean, he actually is a carbon copy of Washington, lose the battle, but win the war. Um, someone put it in our comments, uh, Dan and Michael, a tactics of hit and run, a campaign of a thousand cuts. Um, and that's exactly what Green does in the South. But at the same time, um, you look at some of what he does, he understands what's behind him as well. Um, he under, uh, he goes undergoes a um, getting the topography of the land, routing the waterways, looking at the um, one of the most successful retreats in American history, the race to the Dan, and pulling the uh, the Pirate Victory at Guilford Courthouse. Um, Green is uh, unlucky, but he's lucky in a way that he keeps surviving um, some of these defeats that look like victories from Hopkirk's Hill to Utah Springs. Um, and trying to mirror Morgan at Calpens and what he does uh, green at Guilford Courthouse. Um, but unfortunately, um, so, and actually, let me go, fortunately, let me back up a little bit. Someone said that maybe one of Green's best uh, things uh, prior to being quartermaster is endorsing the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, I'm going to throw that comment out just for a little bit of response. Well, um, agree, disagree, Dan? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think uh, Lafayette's campaign in Virginia in the spring of 1781 has not been our friend John Moss has looked at it in detail, uh, but I don't think it gets enough attention from uh, historians uh, where Lafayette essentially replicates Green's campaign in the Carolinas, uh, keeping Green's supply line from Virginia to the Carolinas open and uh, ultimately waging a campaign of exhaustion against Cornwallis. Oh, that's there you go. So, uh, Green. So, if Green is the mini me of Washington, then Green's endorsement of Lafayette is the mini me of, of Green. So, we can continue like those Russian dolls, polling them down. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, Nathaniel Green, uh, because of his time as quartermaster general and how well he did, and because of his rescinding of his uh past, um, actually ends up uh retiring or after the war settling in Georgia, um, and he gets land there from this colony or state of Georgia, um, but unfortunately, he doesn't survive too long. Dan, do you want to wrap up the Green post-American Revolution? Yeah, Green is uh, left destitute. Uh, he uh, takes money out of his own pocket eventually to supply his uh, supply his army. Uh, he is, in fact, meeting with one of his creditors that he owes a, a significant amount of money to in uh, Savannah, returning home to his plantation, Mulberry Grove. He, what we think, uh, he comes down with a bout of heat stroke, and he unfortunately passes away uh, from uh, heat stroke. And uh, Anthony Wayne, 
uh, Continental Army General, a subordinate of uh, Green's, who's with him when he passes away, leaves behind, I think, uh, Green's great epitaph, where uh, Wayne says, he writes shortly after Green's passing that, I've seen a great and good man die. And then uh, let's, uh, we're going to test your knowledge here, Dan, real quick. Who, uh, someone asked the question, who was the quartermaster general at the siege of Yorktown for the American Army? I believe it's Timothy Pickering. Timothy Pickering or, uh, yes, I think um, what I'm looking up, I think you're right there. Okay. Um, he's, uh, so yeah. Um, and how were supplies, ammunition, depots organized there? Do you uh, want to take a crack at it? I want to say they're probably they're uh, being set up similar to uh, how and I have to go back and take a look at this, but uh, based on experience, they're probably being set up similar to how they were set up uh, shortly after Valley Forge and how Green utilized them in the uh, Southern campaign. But again, that's something I'd have to go back and uh, do a little bit more digging into as to how Lafayette and Baron Bunch Toybin handle their uh, supply lines, lines of communication and 1781. Yeah, so Bob, we hope we answered a little bit of your question there um, about who the quartermaster and so forth was. Uh, of course, depots, obviously, the, the American and French armies can use the French Navy. You have the town of Williamsburg, of course, all the way up now that the British have moved out, Richmond and so forth. So you do have a little bit more of a structure probably put in place. Obviously, I was Washington um, has examined what Green did up at Valley Forge. Uh, so before I have closing remarks, any last comments thoughts questions anything Dan? this was this was really enjoyable i appreciate you all having me back uh this was a fast 55 minutes i don't know where the time went but this has been great oh no it uh when we start doing the verbal reveries and an hour seems uh like a few minutes you know it's you're having fun so um we thank everyone uh great comments suggestions or and comments questions in the chat um now uh we will be back this is the last one in august um so we'll be back on uh, around labor day weekend um let me bring it up we are going actually back and having the evening with david l preston um who wrote the book braddock's defeat so we're going to talk about Washington as a junior officer before he becomes the Continental uh, Army commander. So great book. If you haven't read it, you have a few weeks to read it. If not, uh, you can listen to a synopsis there uh, by David Preston there on September 4th. So two weeks from tonight. However, as we move into September, we're about one month away from the next Emerging Revolutionary War Symposium held in historic Alexandria. World turned upside down using the quote from Yorktown, segue in there. Uh, tickets are still available. We have some great speakers talking about the French or John Adams international diplomacy or even the Russian influence in the American Revolution. And in about three months, uh, we have a few tickets, I think a handful left for this uh, emerging Revolutionary War second annual bus tour that will look at the American army and the creation of that. And we will do Valley Forge and Monmouth. Uh, for those tickets as well, please head over to emergingrevolutionarywar.org. Um, and uh, secure your tickets to join that bus trip November 11th through 13th, 2022. Uh, so with that, uh, for uh, Dan, thank you for joining us again. Always a great pleasure. Uh, Dan and I have had many of a fireside chats talking about things of this nature. Um, we only made one reference to the American Civil War, so I think that was uh, good for us for an hour. Um, 
So uh, thank you for tuning in here uh, tonight. We look forward to seeing you in two weeks when we talk with David Preston, Braddock's defeat, and the French in the war. Be safe and have a great rest of your August, everyone. Bye-bye.